Welcome back to the Effective Ministry Podcast, the podcast that helps you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your local church. My name is Tim Beelharts. I'm a children's ministry advisor for YouthWorks in Sydney. I'm joined today by my colleague and return podcast guest, Beck Baines. How are you, Beck? Hey, I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. We are also joined by Luke Graham, who I'm told is the assistant minister, especially responsible for kids and youth ministry at Canterbury Anglican Church. Does that sound right, Luke? Uh, nailed it. Something <laughs> yeah. like that. <laughs> Perfect. That is brilliant. Hey, we're here at House Conference. Um, if we can hear some echo, it's because we're in a weird hall down at the Deer Park sites. <laughs> and we also have some ambient rain settling in above us as well. So we've got some <laughs> background noise happening. That's what's going on. But as uh, if you've been following the podcast the last few episodes, we've particularly been thinking about discipling the emotions of young people. We're about halfway through the conference. We've heard both papers now by Kamina Wurst and Dr. Keith Condy. Um, And so we've been thinking about what it looks like to disciple the emotions of young people. And I flagged on a couple of episodes ago, the question I've got is a lot of the conversation in the papers assumes a neurotypical person and that we can uh, converse with them, we can talk about their emotions, we can analyse their emotions. And particularly working with Beck, particularly thinking about my own circumstances, I'm my immediate reflex was, okay, great. What about neurodivergent children mm. and youth? Mm. Luke, you've got a massive passion in this area. Do you want to give us a little bit of a, a personal background, a ministry background? How did you get involved and interested in this idea of neurodiversity? Yeah, um, so many, uh, God gave me so many opportunities to work with uh, neurodivergent young people, especially. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Social Work uh, as my undergrad, which I really adored. Um, And while I was doing that, I worked as a teacher's aide in a high school where, because I was doing a Bachelor of Social Work, they gave me more of the um, complex kids. So I worked a lot with uh, kids with um, autism and uh, what was called Oppositional Defiance Disorder at the time and um, ADHD in schools. And I also worked as a support worker, so working with uh, young people uh, in their homes and uh, often taken them out to just go have fun and enjoy life together. Uh, often I worked with uh, level three autism, which is uh, they were nonverbal and needed full-time support and care. Uh, and while I worked with them, especially, I just had this reoccurring thought of what would it look like for me to invite you to my church? Um, would there be a space for you to um, flap and dance and, and do all the things that uh, a part of uh, how God has made them, is there really a space for them uh, in the, the church that I am a part of um, and in the churches that I, I see around um, what would it look like for them to become a part of church? And um, it really broke my heart to imagine that that might not be uh, possible and it might not be a, a safe place for them. Um, Was that your assessment at the time as you thought about your your church and other churches you knew at that moment? You thought, actually, if I invited you tomorrow to come to church what would your assessment of the space be? Yeah, there was such an emphasis on polite appearances in church and not a lot of space in in churches that I see around for, um, you know, making noise in the middle of services. And we really have to work hard even to to get churches to appreciate having babies in the service who are going to make noise and having an adult who might look like everyone else around them but uh, need to, to make noises at different points or need to get up and move around the room or whatever it is, I, I struggle to imagine uh, them feeling really welcome at, at churches that I saw around. 
Um, and that was just, yeah, really heartbreaking. And I, I wanted that it'd be a place for them to come and belong and know that they are loved and engage deeply with the gospel. And that's been a passion of yours. You're helping, I guess, amongst peers leading that conversation. We'll come to that expertise yeah. in just a second. Uh, Beck, we mm. last talked to you back on episode 30... No, episode 16. We're on episode 34 today. <laughs> episode 16, where you had just started in the role. I think you were a couple of days in. Yep. We've now been seven months or so into yeah. the role your job is to go around looking at churches and assessing them and uh, not formally assessing, but just kind of giving your opinions on are these places where Mm. uh, all sorts of accessibility and inaccessibility uh, issues come to the fore? Is it a welcoming, belonging space? Just give it a bit of a snapshot. Last seven months, what have you noticed? What have you seen? What brings you joy? What worries have you got? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, it's been so exciting to meet up with different churches and meet up with different kids and youth ministers. Um, I think definitely neurodiversity is uh, a top need that uh, is in the kids and youth ministry world and even beyond that. A lot of people are concerned with, uh, are we doing the right thing by the kids that are coming along? Are we catering to their needs? Um, how can we help them feel included? Uh, and I think in, in some spaces I've been in, it's been just so encouraging and joyful to hear um, how they're thinking in their faith development. So they're not just sort of um, catering to behavioural needs and making everything, I guess, unified and, and, and harmonious in that sort of sense. But it's actually... Uh, how do these kids know God and, and how do I teach them God? And so it's been very exciting to uh, encourage and empower people and give training to um, volunteers in those programs and ministries um, to welcome people in, but then also to encourage the faith development um, that is going on. So um, everything, every church I've been to is different. They've got a different story. They've got different kids. Um, that's the the you know, neurodiversity there and spectrum in that sense, but just helping people be thinking through uh, different ways of doing things and maybe even thinking through methodologies or pragmatics, like why do we do what we do and is the way we do a ministry conducive to effective learning and being together with kids, with one another. And I'll put these links in the uh, the bottom of the episode in the show notes but if you want to reach out to Beck and have her come along to your ministry or even just to talk on the phone or via email mm-hmm. you can go to youthworks.net look under the ministry support tab about our team and you'll get all of Beck's details there uh, you certainly haven't been short of conversations over the last no. seven months and please contact me because I love meeting people love getting to know you and love hearing your stories and and hopefully helping you uh, in your journey there yeah it's certainly a key part of effective ministry um, is very much one that is welcoming and inclusive of those with different levels of uh, uh, accessibility let's get on to the topic of emotions the first thing I'm wondering is what are some examples of the neurodivergent uh, conditions that might affect emotions there's um yeah so many so much of the neurodivergence that we see really uh, is really deeply intertwined with what it means to feel and uh how to feel uh in what we might call appropriate ways Mm. and so we're thinking about things like uh autism uh, is a big one that uh, we keep seeing uh, being diagnosed particularly at the moment but uh, ADHD and ADD another one that we've spoken quite a bit about with peers at this conference has been uh, PDA which um, is closely related to what I said before of um, oppositional defiance disorder um, which is pathological demand avoidance and that is really tied in with anxiety it's been described to me as uh, an anxiety driven need for control Mm. Um, and so much of neurodivergence um, 
is there's so much anxiety for young people with uh, who are neurodivergent. It's really deeply entwined with the neurodivergent experience. Is a, mm. a sense of anxiety. I did notice that you mentioned, yeah, what was called oppositional device disorder at the time. Would it be safe to say that we're still learning in this space? Yeah, totally. And uh, the research will show that things keep changing and adapting as we understand more of uh, who we are and how we're made up. And um, that is just true of neurodivergence as well. As we understand more of the neurodivergent experience, there are things that we try in research and they seem to not quite fit. And so we try a different thing that fits a bit better. So um, language is constantly evolving. And so just as a side note, it's always really helpful to ask someone how to refer to them as well. Like, cause that is always evolving and always changing how people feel about that. And it's such an individual thing, whether they're an autistic person or a person with autism or um, what sort of language they prefer around themselves. It's so helpful to ask someone around that because it, it's always evolving, the, the language that we use mm. for all sorts of different conditions. I think we talked about it last time, Beck, that that person-first language or mm. condition-first language or yeah. and that it might even change person-to-person, person, yeah. personal preference, condition-to-condition. Condition, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Beck, how might uh, someone who has one of these various neurodivergent conditions, how might they express emotions differently what would Mm. i as an observer notice yeah so um i guess everyone in one sense expresses emotions differently and particularly people on the spectrum and people neurodiverse it might come out in different ways and uh one book i read it was by yana Pittman. um maybe it was when i saw her uh in person but she said that people on the spectrum uh do have big feelings and they do love they just don't always know how to express it um, and so sometimes when someone's getting um, overstimulated with sensory and things like that uh, it might come out as aggression or anger or throwing things or yelling or running away or things like that and that might be because they don't know what is a good expression of how they're feeling or it might be because they're not being listened to or like I guess noticed before it gets to a point um, and so they're trying to say like I'm trying to tell you how I'm feeling uh, and things like that sometimes things might uh, not come out in a true authentic way either um, uh, particularly in high school kind of realms and social dynamics and the unspoken social rules um, people on the spectrum might not know how best to react in certain ways um, and there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, you know what have I done wrong or what am I meant to do um, particularly if they have reacted in a way that's authentic to themselves but it's not being received well by the people around them so they might you know if they're doing stimming like flapping or making noise or jumping around because they're so excited you know and they're telling being told by peers no stop doing that for instance um and then think well, why don't people like me what have i done wrong um what am i meant to do and so uh i guess that's where masking sometimes comes in they sort of try and mimic what's going on around them and what the people are doing in that sort of way so it's quite a lot of different things um i think Getting to know the person uh, and how they are reacting and responding and listening to them and, and whether that's listening by observing or listening like with your ears in that sense. Mm. But um, what is their communication? And so just because they're not expressing way, things in a way that their peers are expressing, it doesn't mean they're not feeling it as well. Um, maybe they need to be given permission to express in a different way or maybe they need to be sort of taught this is different ways that we can express. Yeah, I, I think there's so much we can learn from uh, autistic people as well in the way that they um, can pre- present often with their, their, their feelings in their bodies in a way that so often I feel like I have to repress all of those feelings and, and not show them. I think there's really something to learn from that um, and really something to grieve as well in uh, we don't want our churches to be places where they have to 
mask where they have to pretend mm. to be something in order to be loved and known. Um, but churches really should be the place where they're able to unmask and be more themselves than they are anywhere because we believe in the gospel of grace that says everyone is welcome here. Um, and so we really want our church to be places where um, everyone can unmask, not just people on, not just neurodivergent people, but um, ourselves as well, that we want churches to be places where everyone can come and take off the mask that they wear. And that's more pronounced often for neurodivergent friends. And just appreciating that God has made each and every person as they are with purpose in God's image. And so God hasn't made like a group of certain people and then, oh, here are the ones that didn't quite work out or anything like that. Or, oh, no, this is how you treat those people. He's made us all one and equal. And Mm. let's celebrate that in our church. That is diverse, full Mm. of different people, full of different ways we connect and engage uh, and support and minister to one another. This may open a can of worms, but... I guess one of the questions that might hang over this whole topic is a neurotypical person is more like what humanness should be and any sort of neurodiversity is maybe evidence of fallenness. And I don't know, do one of you have any thoughts on that from you know, a theological point of view and how, do, and how does that impact the way that we think about neurodiversity in uh, the population, in the, those that we serve, those in our churches? Yeah, it is such a can of worms and it is, you know what is a result of sin, what is the new creation going to be like and things like that. And there's questions that we can begin to unravel and try to answer and whatnot. And sometimes it's just we just don't know until we're in the new creation yeah. and um, we just are excited that we are worshipping. Like any perception of the new creation is just going to be um, so much better than when we're actually yeah. there and all that yeah. sort of thing. Mm. And so I think kind of in the now is appreciating, as I was saying before, who God has made people to be and the diversity and the different skills and gifts that people have. And so people on the spectrum um, – will be hugely gifted in certain ways that other people are not um, and have just such a unique way of looking at the Bible and connecting with God and a lens for it. In in our table discussions, we're talking about um, the idea of I don't feel connected to God, you know, how do we manage that in conversations? Um, And, you know, one of the things I suggested in that discussion was, well, is that because there's an expectation that to feel close to God, you have to have had this feeling or this connection or this way you've done things um, or whatnot, but actually celebrating and enabling people to approach God as they are in who they are in a way that is helpful. And yeah, like let's think through how churches can be just diverse in such a wonderful way. Yeah, totally. And I mean, there's a whole other can of worms we could talk about, about fallenness and brokenness and and how those things relate to neurodiversity. (laughs) Some of those questions are are really hard to answer. Um, I think the thing that, like Beck was saying, is that we want to do is celebrate diversity that we have now Mm. um, in our churches. And all of us need to be humble enough to learn from everyone in our church Um, if we believe that the body is beautiful because it's diverse, that the the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you because um, I do all the important stuff, and we believe that um, neurodivergent people can be followers of Jesus, then we have to have spaces in our church where their contribution to our churches are celebrated and recognised. That's just so important to have that. There's a beautiful church in uh, Singapore that I think does this really well. Um, they uh, really celebrate the contribution that the, the neurodiverse people bring, um, sorry, neurodivergent uh, people bring. So they, they celebrate when someone reads the Bible really slowly because that's where they're, the way they're able to communicate because that helps us all sit in the Bible and stew in it and just take it a little longer. 
um, I think sometimes the best thing we can do is be a non-anxious presence, not be so worried about things running exactly to time or, um, uh, you know, <laughs> property getting broken. Sorry, parish councillors and wardens <laughs> um, <laughs> who might be listening. Yeah, celebrating the, the contributions that all people at our church can make, including neurodivergent people, um, because if we believe that they're followers of Jesus, um, and I hope that <laughs> that is a non-negotiable, and we believe that they're a part of the body, then their contribution is valuable, not just their presence. Yeah, so so theologically, we've, I mean, we've got, uh, imageness, like every human being is inherently image of God. We've all yeah. got that regardless yeah. of any ability, disability, inability we have. We're all image bearers. Mm. Um, and you're right, if, we, if they're in the church, they're part of the church family, then of course, yeah, mm. they're part of the body. We want them to be contributing mm. in some way. Let's think about then um, our, <clears throat> our children and youth ministry specifically. And you guys can break this up in whatever sort of age categories or breakdown you want. But... How do I do ministry to children and youth, knowing that a number may be neurodivergent? And yeah, if you want to relate it particularly to their emotions, the big feelings that they might have and might express in different ways. Uh, but yes, how do I start to do um, make welcoming spaces for those who are neurodivergent? Across the board, communication is a key thing. Um, so being able to communicate with parents very well and, and then them being able to channel that to their kids, being able to communicate with the kids themselves, whether they're tiny tots or, you know, just about to turn into an adult, um, how do we communicate well? So you can do that, uh, yeah, through the spoken um, word and just talking with them, um, managing expectations, um, sharing what things are going to be like for the day or for the week ahead, uh, things like that, making the most use of visuals and things you can see and kind of almost over-informing in some way. So whether it's on a projector screen, whether it's in a handout they're holding, whether it's through an Instagram post or things like that, kind of overfeeding, just so there's preparedness, um, understanding uh, what's going on. Um, and the idea here is that we're lowering the anxiety is that a large part of what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of preparedness. They know what they're coming in for. Uh, reduced anxiety. Um, and even just kind of mentally going, okay, well, I know that this aspect of the program is going to be a bit more of a challenge, but I know that that's when it's got another part is when it's going to be easier. So, for instance, if the games and whatnot are a harder point, maybe because it's getting to know the program, they're getting to know you, the systems, and they've been communicated with what the day is going to look like, they can... Uh, more or less endure a, a loud game time perhaps um, knowing that that's only going to be for a set time because then it's going to just calm down into Bible teaching time um, and whatnot. Yeah and so all of that comes back to what you're saying Tim the um, lowering the anxiety like we, we've said a few times uh, a lot of what we see in the neurodivergent experience is anxiety around um, you know am I doing the right thing am I showing the right emotion here um, it's been described to me like a, a sixth sense that, particularly for autistic kids, that they're, they're missing, that there's a social sense that they're missing. And so all of the little social cues that all of their peers are able to pick up on, they feel like they're missing out on. And so there's this whole world of anxiety they come into. And then you add to that, the, there's a, a heightened uh, sensory experience. So all the, the, the little sensory moments that they experience can add to this mounting pressure of anxiety. And um, Beck was saying this yesterday in a, a chat we were having, but 
all the, the little things like the scraping of a chair, the harsh lighting, the smell of coffee, roasting for morning tea, all those things just uh, accumulate in this anxiety. And if you imagine like a, a, a fizzy bottle, like a, a soda bottle that's getting shaken and shaken and shaken and shaken by lots of little things that are overwhelming them, by not knowing where to sit or how to be, by the, the sounds that are overwhelming them, it'll explode somewhere and it might not be uh, a thing that feels to us recognizable as something that might set someone off, but it might just be the, the last little thing in that fizzy bottle that leads them to explode and have a meltdown. And so anything we can do to help lower that anxiety is so helpful. And so much of that stuff that we do will be helpful for everyone. Like having like a visual timetable so that kids know exactly what's coming in. I know so many of my kids that that just helps them feel like it's not just this random stuff that's coming, but they know actually after this game, we're going to have a Bible talk and it helps them prepare as well. Things like over-communicating with parents, all those sorts of things are helpful for every kid. Um, and so, yeah, and it helps lower the anxiety of all the kids in the room. So you want to have that that calm, warm space that kids are able to walk into where they feel confident in what's happening um, and you want to remove as many barriers to them experience the grace and truth and beauty of the gospel as possible. Yeah, I want to come back to the point about parents. Um, one of our seven principles for effective ministry is that it's a clear partnership with parents, that we are in discipleship with alongside parents, and that's how we exist as church ministers. But before then, just let's um, get really practical. Uh, I'm thinking about almost my group, but just trying to think about <laughs> groups that I've seen all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I've got this, imagine I've got this diverse group of kids and we've talked this week uh, at house about creating uh, safe spiritually formative places which yeah. are places that are, have a warmth and a belonging for all the different needs and I just think you know potentially if other churches might be like mine I've got some kids who uh, their particular additional need would be somewhere along the ADHD line yeah and so they are hyper engaged hyper energetic they got to move their bodies they're mm -hmm. loud uh, and so for them a spiritually formative place is going to be something that engages with their emotions and their mm. vibrancy and their yeah, yeah. energy and their loudness and they're going to appreciate all the things yeah. that helps them to spiritually engage in the way that god has particularly made yeah. them uh, then there's also going to be kids uh, in a diverse group you don't have to get very big before you start to get a number of kids and there'll be some that might be have sensory overload they might have yeah. um, a real sensitivity to overstimulation mm. and for them they need quietness they need calmness they need safe spaces for them which are not loud and almost the exact opposite and of course you've got kids all over mm. in between and yeah. what am I doing as a ministry leader how do I create spiritually formative places for all of these kids mm. given the resources that I have yeah I think sometimes we're, we're very attached to particular ways of doing things we think um, if I'm running kids' church, it has to be um, a big, loud game that everyone is involved with. And if they're not involved with, it's a, a, a kind of a source of shame that they're not involved in that. And then it's got to move to this particular way of doing a Bible talk and then discussion groups, whatever. Yeah. And I, I don't want to... sitting down, sitting still, hands in lap. <laughs> yes. While I monologue for 20 minutes. And yeah. yeah. So we want to be not attached to form overly. Um, we want to be attached to the thing that we're doing, which is... We want our services to be places where kids can engage deeply with the gospel, um, have the opportunity to explore and deepen faith. Um, and so does that mean maybe the, the big loud game that everyone has to be involved with um, 
does that have to be a central part of our program? Can we have choice there? So we've just started introducing uh, occasionally having three choices that you can do instead of a game at the start where there's a big loud game you can go, there's a corner where you can go read and there's some art you can, you know, there's some chalk you can put on a wall over here. Um, having some, some choice within your program can mm. be a really powerful thing. The more you know your kids and are willing to be humble enough to put your own preferences aside, the more effective your ministry will be. If you know your kids and you know that there's a bunch of kids with ADHD who just need to move and run, I, I have a scripture class like that that I do every Thursday morning who I, I adore and I love. And every single one of them, when I surveyed them, said their favorite thing at school was sport and they're up and moving around and they, they're, yeah. Uh, but are there ways that, that they're on, in that class I, there's lots of ways that they move around the classroom. We do lots of, um, you know, choice activities where you move to one side of the room or the other. We do lots of, um, you know, lots of things in the space because the thing I want isn't a form. Like I, I, I don't, don't think we need to be overly attached to the, the, the way we do it. Um, if it's not working, then we can cut it. And as long as the thing that we're doing helps young people uh, engage with and explore and take hold of the gospel for themselves. Um, so keep that why the main thing, like we're there to yeah. help disciples, spiritually form kids. Yeah. And it might mean that as leaders, we need to be experimenting lots yeah. of different options and yeah. try and thinking about the different kids and, yeah. and diversity of, I like that idea of options. Like there's, there's different ways you can engage you know, in, in small groups or in whatever it is. Yeah. Just coming back to the, in our last few minutes, this question about parents. Beck, mm. uh, both you and I listening to uh, Ed Drew's podcast, mm. friend of the podcast, Ed Drew, um, was out in Australia recently. He has a podcast in the UK, Faith in Parents podcast. I'll link to a couple of key episodes. Mm. But one of the um, people he interviewed there talked about as a parent, you have this child and you have hopes and dreams for your particular child. And it's kind of like, planning a trip to France and then the plane lands and you realise you're in Denmark. Mm. And you can either try and do all that you can to get back to France or you can realise you're in Denmark and go, okay, well, here we are. We're in Denmark. Let's what we can do here. Mm. Beck, I'll turn to you first. Having a child with uh, neurodiversity can be quite anxiety-inducing and mm. produce a whole lot of emotions and stress for parents. How can we as partnering with parents in the discipleship of children, what's the family piece? How can we engage well with those families? Yeah, so a lot of um, listening to the parents and hearing them um, and assuring them and reassuring them, things like that. I think um, some of the, the pathways of getting a child to effectively be part of a group um, can be... Uh, hindered by a parent's anxiety because they want their kid to thrive and they want their kid to be accepted um or the other side is that they don't want to hear a lot of negative feedback um i think sometimes in some families they all they hear is oh so and so was uh, really hard today or so and so did this and it's all just that negative sort of stuff and so actually how can we flip the positive thing positive things going on so Again, in our chat at house yesterday on the table group, um, we talked about uh, what are the things that bring you joy? Uh, what are the things that are really cool about this kid that you've got in your ministry? Mm. Um, and feeding that back to the parents. Um, and, you know, we delight that your kid is here and we want to help them and support them. Um, and in doing that, is that uh, are there things that you can give to us that's helpful to help your child? So um, whether it is filling out a form of their likes and dislikes, their strengths, their challenges, just any and all information, not that that information is going to then go, oh, actually, no, we can't have your kid here. It's actually what can we do to help support your kid? So um, 
you know, if there's something that we actually just genuinely don't know and something's gone wrong or we're having communication problems with your child in our ministry, um, that's not going to be totally helpful. But if the, the parent can communicate that because they know it, um, that'll be great. So creating a space of love, care, support. Um, I think also networking parents that are other parents as well, particularly that are on a similar journey. Um, I've heard of one place where one mum was, um, you know, she left her job to commit herself to full-time care for her son, learning things, equipping herself as much as she could to help her child. But on the other side, there was a mum who just really had no idea what to do, was so overwhelmed, and what do I do? And how can we partner those kind of parents up and create a support network and a support group? Um, yeah, just to encourage, to help, to love, um, and just go, you know what, even when there are going to be times that are tricky and hard that we'll need to work together with, um, you are always welcome. You belong here. We want you here. Yeah, I really want to say the best thing you can do is ask the, the expert in their experience will always be the person themselves and often their parents, um, particularly when you're working with children and young people. Um, so keep asking and partnering with parents. Um, keep asking that question of what can we be doing to support you? And also really importantly, I, I think it's so helpful to say we love having your kid here or we love having you here. That can make such a difference in a world where kids are so often treated as a problem to be solved. Uh, so just keep telling parents how much you love their kids, how much you love having them in their program. Keep telling kids how much you love having them here, that their presence is valuable and important and um, precious. Um, that That's such an important way to partner with parents, but also just to communicate the, the gospel value that uh, we all gain by having their kids as part of our churches. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Beck. Thank you, Luke. It's been really, really helpful. Uh, you guys have set up a Facebook group for those who are particularly interested in thinking about church ministry to youth and children uh, with additional needs. Where can we find that? If you search Accessible Kids and Youth Ministry in Facebook, you might be able to find it. <laughs> Some people we've talked to this conference, it's been hard to find. So contact Beck. Um, with the, what you've got in show notes and that'll be the best way to get to be a part of that I think mm-hmm. fantastic if um, I can get the link working I'll put that into the show notes as well but if not you can email beckbaines at youthworks.net and you, she'll be able to hook you up with those we'd love to see people from churches uh, all over Sydney all over the world connecting there and sharing their ideas so if you are in ministry you've got those with additional needs in your group whether it's by neurodiversity or any other sort of additional need you're welcome in that group to be sharing ideas and resources and learning from each other the effective ministry podcast is a production of youth works in sydney we want to see effective youth and children's ministry in every church and one of the ways that you can help us do that is by letting people know about this podcast in all the usual ways like comment, share, and review on your favorite social media and podcasting platform. If you've got comments, thoughts, or questions for this podcast, you can email us at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net and also check out youthworks.net for other ways that YouthWorks can help you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your church.